And just really quickly, uh, do you prefer UBI or big? Big. Um, big? Okay, cool. Big, big, so, big UBI sounds like some sort of medical problem, whereas big. <laughs> yeah. Um, all right, so this would be a good transition point to talk about the basic income guarantee or the big. In the last episode, we explored the sharing economy, which we found to be exciting, but also potentially a source of displacement or even unemployment. This week, we're going to explore one idea that has become more and more popular in libertarian and some progressive circles, the universal basic income, also called the basic income guarantee. You're listening to the fourth episode of Audible Ethics, a podcast from Duke University's Keenan Institute for Ethics that takes on interesting topics and asks relevant questions. I'm David Wolliver Sanchez, and before we start, the views expressed are those of the speakers. To talk through this idea, we are joined once again by Professor Mike Munger. My name is Mike Munger. I'm a professor of economics, political science, and public policy at Duke University, and I'm the director of the PPE program, which is an interdisciplinary undergraduate certificate program. Now, this is a controversial policy proposal, and I understand that. Professor Munger is pro-basic income guarantee, but I don't want to ignore the counter-arguments in this episode. As we're exploring this idea, be critical, but keep an open mind and decide for yourself if this sounds plausible to you. We started our conversation by defining the basic income guarantee and understanding some of its potential implications. Well, there's a number of different forms of it. Um, The first time that I know of that it was proposed was actually by Thomas Paine in something that he wrote in 1798 called Agrarian Justice and then Henry George picked up on it. So there's a stream of public finance economics that they're called single taxers, and they think that all the taxes should fall on land and that we can use that to uh, fund other stuff. What the interesting thing about what Thomas Paine suggested right at the end of the 18th century was that when people become, they they get to the age of 21, basically society says, okay, here's a substantial, not huge, but a substantial amount of money, it's your stake. And you can spend it on whatever's going to, you know, your plans. And we sort of do that now. We we subsidize tuition. In many ways, we try to make it easier for young people. And then Thomas Paine also thought that we should do that for people that were old and needed some sort of pension. People in between would be responsible for their own livelihoods. But we would provide very young people with a stake and very old people with a sense of security. Now, uh, interestingly, one of the people who later picked this up was Milton Friedman, who proposed a negative income tax. And the idea of a negative income tax is that people below a certain income level would actually get a tax credit. Rather than owing taxes, they would be paid. A number of other Frankly, libertarian economists or libertarian-leaning economists have also proposed something like the same thing. And I I think there's two reasons why many people find it attractive. One is we already spend so much on welfare programs and yet there's still poor people. Well, how can that be? As P.J. O'Rourke, the humorist, has pointed out, a number of other people have actually tried this and it's factually true. If you add up the total amount that we spend on welfare, on poverty programs, and divide by the number of poor people, there shouldn't be any poor people. We're just not giving them the money. One of the reasons for that is what Arthur Oaken called the leaky bucket problem. That is, 
the money is appropriated, and then there's a lot of people who administer these programs. And, you know, that makes sense. That's okay. The, they're, the, these are hardworking people. They're bureaucrats trying to administer a difficult system, and the system's complicated. So, but a lot of the money doesn't actually get to the poor people. The advantage of the big or the negative income tax is what we're saying is simplify the system and just give them the money. They won't be poor anymore. The question is, why don't we do that now? And I, the answer, I think, is that we don't trust them. So one of the things I have to admit that I like about the big is that it smokes out the paternalists among people who say they care about the poor. If you really cared about the poor, what we'd like to do is get rid of poverty. No, what they want to do is force poor people to spend the money the way they want them to spend it. And let me be honest, I think there is something to that. It's a difficult problem. If all we do is give poor people money and nothing else, no guidance, no understanding of how to spend, and we're talking about twelve dollars to $15,000 a year, so let's say $1,250 a month. It's hardly a fortune. Uh, but that's how much we're now spending on welfare programs. If we actually gave them the cash, they would be able to live, but might they just be defrauded? Would they not spend the money on, as I've heard some people say, uh, alcohol, cigarettes, drugs? I mean, you know how those poor people are. What they need is smart white people like me to order them around. Well, that's pretty horrible. The fact is a lot of poor people are very hardworking. What they are, and this is the second problem, they're trapped because so many of these benefits are actually contingent. So the marginal tax rate is over 100%. For if, if you're a single mother, three children, you live in Section 8 housing, and you have, which is a, a housing subsidy, substantial housing subsidy, and uh, you also get food stamps or some other voucher that you can use for food. The first $10,000 that you earn in a job, you'll lose $12,000 in benefits. So let me say that again. The first 10000 you earn, you'll lose 12000 Why would anybody ever get a job? The marginal tax rate's above 100%. So people say, you know, we should lower taxes. I think we should. We should lower taxes on the people that face the highest tax rates, the poor. That's what a big would do. Instead of saying, we'll give you this money as long as you don't do anything responsible and get a job then you can continue to have it. The thing about a big is that it's not contingent. You get the money whether you get a job or not. And that means that I think a lot of people would be able to break out of poverty. Suppose that same mother with three children knew that she was gonna get $1,250 a month. And if she got a job, that would be taxed, but it would still all be hers. She wouldn't lose her benefits. Well, she might be able to arrange for childcare. She might be able to go to school. There's a lot of a lot of ambitious people that are now trapped in the current system. So the big is essentially a negative head tax, meaning that rather than everyone paying a tax, everyone receives the same amount. One question that people often have is: Does everyone get it? Do billionaires get a check the same as everybody else? How could that make sense? I asked Professor Munger to clarify this point, and I found his response to be helpful. Well, I think everybody gets it. It's just that we would have to change tax rates so that for most people it would be revenue neutral. Sure. So yes, Bill Gates would get it, and his tax rate would go up by one-tenth of one percent so that we take it back. Okay. So the, the, for, for the very wealthy, they wouldn't even notice anything uh, because on their taxes it would just cancel out. And 
even for someone like me, that it would just cancel out. Where there would be any action is for the people who make less than about $50,000. For them, there might be some additional subsidy. And the problem is we might have to raise taxes. That We have a separate problem with the progressivity of the tax system. I think it would be, we would have to make the tax system slightly more progressive mm -hmm. to finance this. Okay. But, but for most people, the additional spending would be canceled. The, everybody would get it. It's important that everybody gets it because otherwise it's contingent. And one of its advantages is we don't want to make it contingent on your income because then we're giving you a disincentive. So we have to give it to everyone, but we have to make it so that much of it is financed by a change in tax rates. Okay. So now trying to tie this together with what we were talking about with the sharing economy. So the system might be necessary potentially as a, res as a response to people being displaced from their jobs as a result of the sharing economy? Or do we think that we'll be able to sustain um, such large payouts if there are such high levels of unemployment? The short answer is we're spending it now. So if you think we're going to have to spend less, okay. I think the advantage of this is that it would allow us to spend less over time because as prices fall, the amount of the big could be reduced. Um, I think we're going to have a hard time cutting the poverty spending because a lot of that is really an employment program for bureaucrats. Hmm. And they're very politically powerful. They would like to keep their jobs. So one of the disadvantages of the big is that a lot of perfectly well-meaning, hard-working people would lose their jobs because all of the administrative structure, all of that would be gone. So I think the, the, the difficult part about your question is what would happen, how do we connect these two things? Because if I'm right, the reason we need a big is that more people will be unemployed. But also if I'm right, the amount that we may need to give them may go down. So I, I don't know how we could handle the expense. There's one additional wrinkle that many people bring up. Let me just anticipate. There's two things going on here. Economists would separate them into the price and income effect. So the price effect is the one that I'm worried about. For every dollar I earn, I owe a dollar twenty, which means that there's a substantial disincentive for me to get a job and get on the stairway that leads me to the American dream. I'm trapped in poverty. But wait, isn't there an income effect? If I knew that I was going to get $1,250 a month and I would get it wherever I wanted, I might just go somewhere that's a pretty inexpensive place to live and become the best swordsman in the history of RuneScape. So all I need is a crappy apartment or maybe even uh, like a shipping container that I can heat with an electric heater and an internet connection and I can play World of Warcraft all the time. So won't some people be seduced away from working by the income effect, by the guarantee of if I have no other income I can always have this to live on. I think most people would like to have a little bit better life than that, and since there's the, the price effect goes to zero, the disincentive to have some kind of job is reduced. But I think it, it's quite possible that a fair number of people would basically drop out because now they don't have to work. Alright, so that makes some sense. It seems plausible to me that the current structure of welfare systems is indeed unjust and could be improved. One lagging concern I have, though, is that of inequality. We already have a tremendous inequality problem in this country, let alone the world. But consider what a world like the one we've been describing would look like, where many are displaced from their jobs by the sharing economy, automation, and artificial intelligence. We've been exploring how the big might be a response to that problem, 
But I'm very concerned that the big will do little to even remotely address the inequality that would be present in a world where many people lose their jobs or have low incomes, and a select few are massively wealthy. There seems to be something very wrong about this. I asked Professor Munger about this, and he acknowledged that inequality is a real consideration. There's a chance that if I'm wrong about the pickles and sausages and bread and beer and local cheese, uh, I don't think I am, but it won't be true everywhere. Mm -hmm. In cities, I think people will be able to find a way of making of, of making things that other people want to buy because it's so easy to find them. But for people that don't live, the cost of not living in a city will be pretty high because the delivery costs, the advantages that the economy that I'm talking about would bring, won't, you won't see so much in the countryside. Overall, there may be a very, very substantial increase in inequality. There's a bunch of people that will have very small incomes or none. And a relative few, but maybe a substantial number, a small proportion, but a large number, of extraordinarily wealthy people. Well, both for normative reasons and for reasons of avoiding political revolution, I think it's necessary to have a big. And so I actually think that the big is the answer to the question that you're asking. The question is, what are we going to do about both the normative and political problems of dramatically increasing inequality? And I don't think that people expect income to be equal. What they want is to be, to be assured some kind of life of dignity and security. So the fact that it isn't that much is partly offset by the fact that it's certain. It's not contingent and it's not going to be cut off after six months if I don't find a job. So if I lose my job, I think, okay, I get some unemployment benefits, but a few months from now I'm going to lose it. So I'm pretty worried. This is forever and it's not contingent. One thing that I find very interesting when thinking about distant future is where we as people will find importance and value. What if, because of automation, AI, and other technological and scientific advances, we could have a very productive society, but only work maybe 15 hours a week? Today, we tend to find our identities in what we do. But is it necessary that this be the case? What if jobs became less necessary over time? Could we find identity in other areas more easily? Is there something oppressive about our identity being so closely tied to our labor? Professor Munger and I talked about this a little bit and how it relates to the basic income guarantee. Only for about the last 200 years has there ever been something like what we think of as a job. So people were active, they were creative, there were things that they did, talents that they developed, groups that they worked in, communities that they felt they were part of, but they weren't jobs. Yeah. So what's odd, I think, is that for the last 200 years, we have deified the job. In fact, if two adult men meet each other, probably the first thing one's going to ask the other is, well, what do you do? What is your job? Well, I don't think that people will stop wanting to work or be productive or participate in communities because they are freed from being enslaved to a job, which for most people is pretty bad. So having a job is not the same thing as being productive and happy. Many people, and I, goodness sakes, I'm the luckiest person in the world, being a professor is a great job. There are a few of us that are like that. 
But I think it's easy to lose track of the fact that a whole lot of people only have jobs so that they could get paid. And in many cases, many of them just have jobs so they have health insurance. So they, they really hate the fact that they have to do this. They'd like to move somewhere else, but since the job isn't portable, they can't. They're actually stuck. Labor mobility, the ability of people to go and try to achieve something new or try something new is limited by the fact that jobs aren't portable. So while you're right, I think human beings do define themselves partly in terms of the way they think of their own character and also their place in the community. They're looking for some kind of status by being good at something. There's no reason that that should be about your job. There's all sorts of other ways to achieve status through charity, church, community work. I think that's what people may redirect their attention towards. And in this case, I actually agree with Karl Marx. You know, maybe I'll become really good at the violin. So the fact that I am unshackled from this perfectly legitimate need to produce wealth for other people, if we can produce wealth with a lot less work, a two-day work week instead of a five-day work week, there may be an explosion of human creativity. So the, I, I, would, I would concede the point, we do want to be productive. But the idea of a job is relatively recent, and I think we can get rid of it. Old people want to accumulate things. And if you look at my Facebook page, there are, I have pathetic pictures of my house and my car. And young people have pictures of them hang gliding in Nepal. They want to accumulate experiences. And young people want, old people want to accumulate stuff. I actually think the young people have that right. So you're not trapped, not just by a job, but by a house and a car and payments. You didn't have to pay for those things, and you could rent. You could get their use for just a little while, and then share them with other people. Fifty years from now, twenty-year-olds are going to look back and say they were so selfish. Why would they spend so much money to be able to lock up things that other people could have been using? It doesn't make any sense because they themselves could have gotten the revenue from renting them out, but instead they paid for these elaborate security systems to make sure no one used them. It doesn't make any sense. Um. I always ask this before we wrap up, but is there anything else that you want to say that you felt like you haven't said? I've, uh, if, if it sounds like I've said all this before, it's probably true. <laughs> <laughs> so all right. I, 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 I'm pretty good at getting in my, my points. Okay, great. Thank you so much. Well, if nothing else, these ideas are interesting. I can't say that I'm convinced. To me, it sounds like a big could reinforce inequality and not get to the root of the problem. But if current funding to programs could be spent more effectively, then that seems like a positive thing. And there's something to be said for the fact that the big gives people more autonomy over their lives and might free them up to pursue interests or passions they felt too restricted to before. I'm just hesitant to talk about the big like a perfect cure to social ills or long-term concerns but it just might be a good idea, or at least a piece of a bigger puzzle. And I guess that's a good place to start. If you liked this episode, be sure to subscribe and listen to the next episodes. Then, if you're willing, please leave a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. That way, other people can discover us more easily. Find us and share us on Facebook or Twitter, and send comments, questions, or ideas to keenanpodcast at gmail.com. Audible Ethics is a product of Team Keenan at the Keenan Institute for Ethics. I'd like to thank Professor Mike Munger for sitting down with me for this episode. Be sure to listen to his appearances on Econ Talk and Planet Money. I'd also like to thank the student team at Team Keenan and the staff that makes it all possible. 
Music came from Podcast Safe Musical Selections under the Creative Commons license. I'd like to thank the following artists for making their work available. Roll Music, Dexter Bryan, Chris Zabriskie, and Candle Gravity. This episode was written, edited, and produced by myself, and was edited on Adobe Audition from the Creative Cloud provided by Duke University. My name is David Wolliver Sanchez. Thanks for listening, and see you next time.